Welcome back, friends, as we continue our study in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, his letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Today we are continuing in chapter 7, and uh, I want us to look at verses 8 through 16. Uh, we're, we're slowing down a bit as we go through 1 Corinthians 7 uh, because it, it is a topic I think all of us find very interesting. I don't think I can remember ever spending as much time talking about human sexuality and then today marriage, uh, as much time talking about those topics as I've been talking about them since we've been in 1 Corinthians. But uh, human sexuality and marriage and uh, the, the ideas surrounding that and the topics surrounding those issues uh, are very much on the mind of the Apostle Paul as he writes the church in Corinth. So we're going rather slowly as we look at this topic. Again, picking up in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, I want us to look at verses 8 through 17. I want to go ahead and just read it in total to begin with, and then we'll go back and go through it verse by verse. I don't usually do this because it does take some extra time, but I think it's important today to hear this uh, complete text in context. Uh, you can always stop the recording uh, and, and read the whole text before I talk about it on uh, a normal situation. But um, I want to read this whole text today that we're going to be looking at. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 8, Paul is already in verses 1 through 6 uh, laid some foundational principles about marriage. And he's going to talk, start talking about some specific issues surrounding marriage at verse 8. And that's where our text begins for today. Uh, let me read it, and then we'll go back and look at it more closely. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Verse 12, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So that's the text I want us to look at today, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 16. Uh, let me go back and let's, let's go through it a little more closely. Beginning in verse 8, 
uh, he does begin to address specific uh, situations surrounding the topic of marriage. Verse 8 says, to the unmarried and the widows. Uh, Most of us think that he's talking about widowers and widows here. Uh, There was was not a word in the Greek for widower. So Paul has to just use the word to the unmarried and the widows. But uh, I think he's just talking at this point to widowers and widows. He's going to talk about to the he's going to talk about uh, he's going to talk to the unmarried in general later in in chapter seven. But I think here he's really just talking about uh, widowers and widows. So verse eight to the unmarried, the widowers. And the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. And we talked last week about how the Apostle Paul, at this point in his life, uh, was single. Uh, and Paul is saying here to the widowers and the widows that it's good for them to remain single. Uh, let me back up to something I said last week, and it's become more apparent as we go through chapter 7. Paul is uh, very much inclined to think at this point in his ministry that the end of the age was coming quickly. The return of Christ was coming quickly. Uh, He would change that view by the time he writes Ephesians. By the time he writes Ephesians, later in his ministry, he begins to talk more about a long-term view of the church in history. And he begins to talk more about marriage continuing in relationships, continuing. But when he wrote 1 Corinthians, it's one of his earlier letters, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he thought the end of the age was coming quickly. So you're going to hear him say multiple times in chapter 7 that uh, people should just remain as they are uh, because the, the time is short and they want to be able to focus on the final ministry of the people of Jesus before the end comes. So you need to keep that caveat in your mind when he says here that the unmarried, the widowers, and the widows should remain single as he is. Verse 9, notice he does give them an out. Look at verse 9. He says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. That's all the Greek says. It is better to marry than to burn. Uh, the, The translation I have in front of me uh, helps you understand the text by simply saying it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And that is the consensus view as to what Paul's saying here. If you cannot uh, exercise self-control and your sexual desire is such that you you can't exercise self-control, go ahead and marry because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Uh, as I said, though, the Greek here just says it's better to marry than to burn. Uh, some, uh, even contemporary scholars, say that uh, the burn here is not a reference to burning with passion, but the burn here is a reference to burning in hell. So he could be saying it's better to go ahead and marry than to burn in hell, uh, because sexual immorality can get us into a very bad place in regards to our relationships with Jesus Christ. But the the more consensus view today is he's talking about burning with passion. So Paul says, if you cannot exercise self-control, it's better to go ahead and marry than to burn with passion. Let me also say this as we listen to Paul talk about marriage and divorce and the possibility of remarriage. Uh, There are going to be times where he's going to encourage or allow remarriage, just like Jesus has one specific situation where Jesus allows for remarriage. Uh, 
Um, but let me say that, um, you know, we should never use the Scripture, never use the teaching of the faith to look for loopholes to help us get what we want. Uh, Paul is saying here it's, it's probably better to remain single in light of the impending end. But if you can't remain single, here's, here's an option. Here's a way out. Uh, you can go ahead and, and marry. Uh, I don't think any of us would say that just because you can't control your sexual urges, you should marry the first person you have an opportunity to marry. I'm sure Paul would not say that. So don't just take this as a loophole to to get around self-constraint. He would obviously still say that you need to marry the right person. And you don't just marry for the sake of of having an outlet for your sexual urges. So he said this to widows and widowers. Uh, He's telling them to remain single uh, because of the impending end of the age. But if they can't do that, if they cannot exercise that self-control, they can go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. So in verse 10, he moves on to talk uh, specifics about married people. Uh, And it's very interesting what he says here. He's going to reference something that Jesus says, and he's going to add something to what Jesus says. So look at verse 10. He says, To the married... I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And at this point, he is, he is referencing, and Paul doesn't do this often, but here Paul is referencing uh, something specific from the teaching ministry of Jesus. Uh, what we believe he's referencing at this point uh, can be found in Mark chapter 10. So after we look at this text, you may want to go back and read Mark chapter 10. Now keep in mind, though, that when Paul was carrying out his ministry, uh, none of the Gospels had been written yet. So he does not have a copy of Mark's Gospel in front of him, but he knows the oral tradition. He knows the teachings of Jesus. Uh, The teachings of Jesus will eventually be written down after the lifetime of Paul and uh, compiled into what we call the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So what he is referencing here, we can find in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 10. So notice what he's saying here as he references the words of Jesus. Verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So at this point, he's just referencing some of the teaching of Jesus. So let me say something both about divorce in general, particularly in the ancient world, and about um, what uh, he's referencing regarding what Jesus had to say about divorce and remarriage. You need to understand that in the ancient world, divorce was very common. Uh, Divorce was um, allowed in Judaism, but divorce was very common almost in the Greco-Roman pagan Gentile non-Jewish world. So the age in which Paul lived was an age in which divorce was fairly common. Um, uh, uh, In the Jewish world, a male could institute divorce for a lot of different reasons. Uh, In the Greco-Roman world, the male or female could institute divorce 
for different reasons. Uh, keep in mind, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. That's predominantly a Gentile church, non-Jewish, uh, in, in a Greco-Roman city, a Roman colony, uh, the city of Corinth, in a city that was uh, perhaps the most immoral city in the ancient world at that time. Remember the, the verb, the ancient verb to Corinthianize meant to uh, live in a sexually immoral way. So Paul is saying that they, they should not be quick to divorce. They were in a culture that was quick to divorce. I know that our culture today uh, has been plagued with a, a rampant divorce rate. Um, that wasn't the same 50 years ago. Um, we don't need to think of Paul's world being the world of our grandparents or our parents. Uh, Paul's world was really more like our world in regards to the fact that divorce was fairly common. Um, Paul is trying to slow down the divorce rate. Uh, and by the way, Jesus was trying to do the same thing uh, when, when Jesus was teaching, trying to slow down the divorce rate. And there's a lot of reasons to slow down the divorce rate. Uh, I think I've noticed um, over the course of my ministry as I, I've dealt with couples and, and marital difficulty that um, a bad marriage can be absolutely terrible, but divorce is never easy either. Uh, divorce is usually very, very difficult, very, very hard on, on, on both parties and uh, on children or perhaps even other family members and sometimes even friends. So divorce is hard. In the ancient world, when divorce would occur, that almost automatically thrust the female into poverty. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons why Jesus and Paul uh, wanted to slow down the divorce rate. So uh, Paul here is quoting Jesus. He says, this is not me, but this is the Lord speaking, when he says the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried uh, or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband uh, likewise. Uh, now, if you go to the Gospels, uh, you do hear the words of Jesus concerning divorce recorded for us in Mark chapter 10. And this is almost direct uh, here in 1 Corinthians from what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. But you um, also can see how the Matthew, Matthew's Gospel records word, the words of Jesus concerning uh, divorce. And when you look at Matthew's account of what Jesus said concerning divorce, he actually gave you uh, an option uh, for a remarriage, for a divorce and possible remarriage, if uh, the divorce occurs because of what? Because of porneia. And that's a term we've come to know well in 1 Corinthians. Porneia sometimes is translated fornication. Uh, it's probably a, a more general, a broader word than just fornication. But Jesus says, as recorded in Matthew's Gospel, that divorce can occur for the reason of fornication, for the reason of porneia. If, if, the, if the partner, if the other partner has participated in adultery, sexual immorality, sexual relationships outside of marriage, uh, then Jesus does allow for that in Matthew's rendition of what Jesus says about marriage. Um, but otherwise, um, Paul and Jesus both say, try to be very slow and hesitant about heading toward divorce. And again, I think anybody that's been through divorce would tell you that's, that's never a goal. It's never an ideal. No one goes into marriage of 
thinking they're going to divorce one day. Divorce is hard. Divorce is painful. So uh, we, need, we need to um, um, use it only as a last resort. Um, you know, I've said over the years many times to couples, if you cannot put together a Christian marriage, uh, let me help you put together a Christian divorce. Let me help you be Christian as you separate and divorce and create an amicable separation. But, of course, the ideal is one man with one woman for one lifetime. That's the ideal. We see that in the New Testament. We know that from Christian tradition. Uh, But we need to be quick to acknowledge that very few of us meet the ideal of Christian living um, in, in most areas of life. Uh, we have the ideal that is usually ahead of us and beyond us. But that is the ideal. One man with one woman for one lifetime. Uh, we, need to, um, we need to be very careful about pursuing divorce. We need to be very careful about pursuing remarriage. And we need to flee what might be termed uh, sexual immorality beyond just divorce and remarriage. So Paul here He's talking to the married. He begins talking to the married people in Corinth, telling them to uh, stay married, if at all possible. Uh, evidently, Christians were divorcing too much there in the Greco-Roman culture of Corinth. Um, but here in verse 12, Paul begins to talk again about divorce, and he's going he's to give you something in addition to what Jesus said. And he's going to tell you this is in addition to what Jesus said. Now, we don't think Paul is saying that somehow it doesn't, um, it doesn't, it doesn't imply that what he, Paul, says is significant. Um, Paul says frequently, later in 1 Corinthians, he'll say it, he believes he has the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is talking through him. Uh, he probably would never say that his words are of equal value of Jesus's. But don't hear him saying that his words are, are, are of no value compared to Jesus. Because he is getting ready to say something to us, beginning at verse 12. And he's going to make it clear what he's saying is coming from, coming from him, not so much from Jesus. Uh, but we still take this as authoritative. You still see it right here in sacred scripture. By the time the, the New Testament period ends, uh, you can see this in, in, for instance, Second Peter, Paul's writings are being considered scripture, just like the Old Testament. So we, we do see the words of Paul authoritative. Uh, but he is going to differentiate here between what he has told you Jesus said regarding divorce or remarriage and what he's going to say to you beginning in verse 12. He is going to um, add something to this topic that we only find here in 1 Corinthians. But again, don't be excited by finding a loophole. But uh, there are times I've been very grateful uh, for the grace that Paul seems to show at this point. Look at verse 12. Paul writes and says, to the rest I say, and he says, I, not the Lord. He's not quoting a teaching from the lips of Jesus. He's acknowledging this is coming from him. So verse 12 again, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Well, obviously in a missionary culture, such as was the situation of Paul's world 
And by the way, I think it's very much becoming the situation of our world in the West in a post-Christian culture where a lot of the people in the culture are not Christian. Uh, Paul was watching there in Corinth. It was not completely unheard of for one, one spouse to become Christian and the other spouse to not. So there were probably Christians saying there in Corinth that if you became Christian and your spouse did not, then that, that you, 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 just, you could just leave the marriage. Uh, that, that might be behind what Paul is answering here. So that's why Paul is saying to the rest, I say that if a brother, any brother, and that's, this is a Christian, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So he's saying that if you are a believer, your spouse is not a believer, and that unbelieving spouse is okay with the marriage, you, you hang in there. You stay uh, as the believing spouse uh, with an unbelieving spouse in the marriage. Uh, I continue, verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Notice the egalitarian nature here. We've already seen this from Paul, uh, where he says identical things to both the male and the female. That would have been very radical in the first century. He's saying it here to both husbands and wives. He's saying if your spouse... Uh, is an unbeliever and you are a believer, but your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay married, you just stay married. Uh, you, you receiving Christ is not an automatic exit from your marriage to an unbelieving spouse. And he says the same thing to both the male and the female. Verse 14, he's going to start giving you some reasons for this now. Uh, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What he's saying here is that you as the believing spouse, or the believing parent even, can exercise a sanctifying influence, a holy influence of your unbelieving spouse and in the lives of your children. So that's the reason Paul is giving for saying that just coming to Christ is not an automatic exit or divorce from a marriage with an unbeliever. Because he's saying you, you, you can influence uh, your unbelieving spouse, and you certainly will influence your children. So your holiness may somehow spill over onto them. And certainly we hope that our Christian faith is contagious. We hope that we are an influence with the people we encounter, particularly the people we live with. So that's his reason for saying, you know, if your unbelieving spouse doesn't want a divorce from you because you've come to Christ, uh, you hang in there too. Because you, you might exert a, a, an, an important influence on their lives. But then it gets really interesting if, if you look at verse 15, and this is where Paul really is adding something. He says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, if the unbelieving partner leaves, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved or in bondage. Um, we can look at that two ways. Um, obviously, he's saying that if the unbelieving spouse leaves, you don't have to stay married. 
Uh, he may actually be saying if the unbelieving spouse leaves, you don't have to stay married, and you may even be able to remarry. Um, I, the consensus, and I don't, I hope this is not just being captive to our present-day culture, but it seems to be the consensus among New Testament teachers is that Paul might be allowing for both here. Uh, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, but they're free to, to both divorce and remarried, to remarry. And then Paul says something that I've always been very grateful for. Again, don't just find it as a loophole and allow it to prevent some hard work in regards to relationships. But when um, it is obvious that the relationship is over, I've always been grateful for what Paul says here. Paul says at the end of verse 15, God has called you to peace. So he says that the unbelieving spouse leaves. That's okay. You don't have to fight for the unbelieving spouse to stay. If the unbelieving spouse leaves, you are not bound to the marriage and perhaps even free to remarry. Again, I certainly wouldn't do it quickly or or, uh, it's just a reaction. But uh, Paul does conclude this section by saying God has called you to peace. I'm grateful that Paul says that God wants us to find peace. He wants us to find peace in our hearts through our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He wants us to find peace in our relationships. He wants us to find peace in in our marriage, in our family. God has called you to peace. So you see Paul here offering an out for someone if their unbelieving spouse leaves. Last week when we talked about whether or not Paul had been married, I referenced that um, most of us think he, had, he was married at some point in his life because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem. And uh, it looks pretty strongly from the evidence that to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you, you had to be married. Uh, rabbis were almost were always married. Jesus was a novelty in that regard. But uh, rabbis were almost always married. So for that reason and some others, we think that... Um, Paul was married at one point, but obviously when Paul writes this letter and when Paul is participating in his missionary journeys, he is unmarried. He says that. He said it twice now already in chapter 7 here of 1 Corinthians. So we have to say, well, wonder what happened to his wife. Uh, Perhaps she passed away, which may be the reason Paul starts off talking specifically about marriage here in chapter 7 after he lays the foundational principles. He begins in chapter 8 by talking to widows and widowers. Perhaps he is one of those. Or perhaps his wife left him when he uh, had his Damascus Road experience and became Christian and his world was turned upside down. Uh, And perhaps Paul is speaking from personal experience right here. When he says, if you're married to an unbelieving spouse, stay married. Don't automatically divorce. Give your spouse time to perhaps come to Christ. and You can be an influence. But he does say if that unbelieving spouse leaves, uh, you're free to let that spouse go. And you're free to divorce and perhaps even free to remarry. Paul may be talking from personal experience here because this is, this is novel. 
uh, in New Testament. Uh, look at verse 16 as we conclude. Paul just ends with a rhetorical questions to wrap up this topic. He says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Again, back to that influence. Uh, stay perhaps in that marriage with an unbelieving spouse because you may be able to have positive influence in, in the life of the spouse and certainly the children if there are children. Um, he's, he's either, and the Greek can go both ways here in verse 16, uh, he could either be um, positing something optimistic or pessimistic uh, for how do you know wife whether you'll save your husband uh, or how do you know husband whether you'll save your wife he we not we're not sure whether he's saying chances are good or chances are bad but he's obviously just raising the question and saying you need to consider this question before you you uh, find your way um, working yourself out of that marriage with an unbelieving spouse so this is obviously important stuff um Let me say two things in closing. A theology of the body is very important. Uh, That's almost a core issue here dealing with the Corinthians. What we do in the body has spiritual ramifications. That's why sexual immorality is attacked so much here uh, by the Apostle Paul. That's why he talks a lot about marriage here. Because what we do in the body um, is, is... is really important, has, has, strong, has strong spiritual implications. A theology of the body is important. The body is not something that's um, unimportant or inconsequential. Uh, the body is sacred. What we do with the body is significant and important. That's why Paul's talking about a lot of different uses of the body throughout 1 Corinthians. Remember, he started talking about incest way back early in 1 Corinthians. And in many ways, even when he starts talking about how you receive Holy Communion, he, in a sense, is going to be talking again about a theology of the body. And he's going to end up in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15 with an extended discussion about the resurrection of the body. Because, again, for Paul and the Christian faith and the Jewish faith, the body is important. So you need to have a, um, a vigorous theology of the body. Um, but the last thing I want to close with, I've already mentioned it today. I closed with it last week. As we're looking at all of these topics, um, as we're looking at these ideals for the Christian life, remember their ideals and all of us fall short of the glory of God. Uh, it's really important how we, how we deal with the people around us who don't measure up to the ideals, which I don't know that those people really exist. They should be a goal. They should be an aim for us. Um, but we need to make sure we know how to treat people um, who, who fail from meeting the ideals. We, we need to make sure we know how to treat ourselves when we don't live up to the ideals. We Methodists frequently talk about that we do want to be going on to perfection. We want to be growing in grace. We want to be growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, We want to be becoming more holy and more like Christ every day. But sin is a reality. The brokenness of the human uh, being is a reality. And we need to know how to deal with each other and with ourselves when we fail to meet the ideals. Of, of, of the goals. Uh, the goals are important because God, our Creator, knows what makes we, the creatures, happy. He, he knows what is for our happiness. And that's why He sets these ideals before us because He knows what will make for happiness for us. But um, we, we are people of grace. 
We know how to extend grace uh, when we don't live up to the ideals. I know sometimes Christians have always done this. We pick out um, some, um, some, some human failures as to be much worse than other human failures. Uh, and that's just not something the New Testament would condone. We, we, need to, um, we need to be gentle with ourselves. We need to be gentle with each other. We need to strive with all the grace that God gives us to live up to everything uh, that we're called to live up to. But we also need to know how to, um, how to deal with ourselves and each other when we don't meet those needs. Uh, I know that when I was a young child, I, I had an uncle who, through no fault of his own, uh, ended up in the middle of a divorce, and I remember that that was that that was something just absolutely horrible at the time. And again, divorce is never a good. Nobody goes after a divorce when they get married. That's not your goal in life, but it's not an unforgivable sin either. Uh, we need to make sure we know how to deal with each other pastorally. We need to know how to deal with each other with love and grace when we don't meet up to the standards, meet up to uh, the ideals of the Christian life. We don't, we don't change the ideals of the Christian life just simply because we don't live up to them. We don't dumb down the standards to meet our abilities or our capabilities. Uh, but we can be a people of grace and love. So that's probably enough for today. We will continue in these topics uh, throughout chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. It's a long chapter. There are 40 verses. We will start back at chapter uh, 7, verse 17 next week. God bless you, and thank you for your commitment to serious Bible study.